it's uh, the first race of the season for me, so I was not expecting a lot. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in, because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 84 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking about their first race of the year. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And another quick review to get us underway today. Awesome podcast, five stars by Spin 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 from Australia. This is the best in-depth training podcast that I've listened to. I have been doing ergo sessions while listening to them. Great training information. Every cyclist who is looking to create their own training program should listen to these. Wow. Thank you very much for that review. I really do appreciate you taking the time out to go and draw a review in that clunky iTunes interface. But a reminder to you that if you do like this show, please take some time out as well to go to iTunes or Stitcher and drop a review in because five stars make me... Thank you very much. Now, two articles that I found on the interwebs this week. Article number one, nutrient timing. Timing is everything. It is a webinar from Peaks Coaching Group. It is sponsored by a company that sells beetroot juice concentrate, but it's still definitely worth checking out. It's one hour and 45 minutes long. It goes into some really nice depth into nutrient timing. If you don't know what that is, you should definitely check that out. If you do, you just want to check it out to see what new ideas you can adapt to your training. And the second article I found is a study called Low Cadence Interval Training at Moderate Intensity Does Not Improve Cycling Performance in Highly Trained Veteran Cyclists. They just love these really long titles, don't they? Anyway, so the purpose of the study was to investigate the effects of low-cadence training at moderate intensity on aerobic capacity, cycling performance, gross efficiency, freely chosen cadence, and leg strength in veteran cyclists, where they had 22 cyclists split into two groups, a low-cadence training group and a freely chosen cadence training group. And before 12 weeks of training intervention, they had respiratory variables, power output, cadence, and leg strength tested. And then they did it afterwards as well. So what were the results? 12 weeks of low cadence, 40 RPM interval training at moderate intensity, 73 to 82% of heart rate max twice a week does not improve aerobic capacity, cycling performance, or leg strength in highly trained veteran cyclists. However, adding training at some intensity percentage of heart rate max and duration 90 minutes weekly at freely chosen cadence seems to be beneficial for performance and physiological adaptions. That is super interesting. I don't know whether you can draw a connection between that and doing strength endurance efforts up hills where you're sitting down in the saddle, working it out, hands on the top of the bars like a piano, getting in there and trying to build that specific muscle strength for getting up hills faster and being able to sustain a higher output for longer. But you can say it is interesting that just going out and riding for a certain amount of time at whatever cadence you choose is going to increase the adaptions in the endurance zone. So I don't know whether that squashes strength endurance efforts Altogether, I think there has to be some more study done to this, but definitely it is one to think about. 
All right, the nuts and bolts this week, and we're trying to demystify the sprint technique, mostly for non-sprinters. But I have to say, sprinting is a rare thing in cycling. No, not doing the action itself. The skill, the actual skill that we can practice if you ignore tactics, positioning, and panache then actually learning how to sprint is vital for every single racing cyclist and even the non-racers. Riders either believe that they are or they are not a sprinter based on physiological reasons, maybe a bit of psychological as well. Do you have the eye of the tiger? But having a sprint or at least understanding the principles behind a good sprint is needed for almost every single rider. So, And you'll use it in different scenarios, breaking away, bridging gaps, chasing attacks, Anytime you need to accelerate quickly, you're going to call on the skill of sprinting. So to help with this, I got Jonathan Fraley from Serious Speed Training and Development on the show to give us a breakdown of how to practice and develop your sprint. He has a lot of great tips in here, so you might want to replay this twice because there's lots of gold in here. John, welcome to the show. Hi, Damien. Nice to meet you. I know you're a track sprinter, but I wanted to try and transfer the knowledge that you have over to the road a little bit, because I'm sure you do coach people on the road as well, but also those non-sprinters out there. And there's a couple of trackies that listen to the show, but I think the bigger value is going to be someone that isn't a sprinter on the road, because track riders are pretty good at getting up to speed quickly. But the reason that you caught my attention was because of your form of sprinting guide, which is a 26-minute video purely on sprinting technique. And the thing that amazes me is that nobody is talking about this stuff. So what led you to create this product? For what the reason you just described. To be honest, there's, there's no one talking about it. Uh, it's probably something that, well, not probably, everybody can improve on it, and uh, no one's really teaching it. I mean, you, you watch people ride a bike, and especially when they sprint, they look like they're more like they're having a seizure more than making power. <laughs> And uh, that's just go to your average bike race of everybody going for a preem, and uh, you know ninety percent of the field just looks looks like that, and that that few percentage that that do put the power to the bike are are the ones that uh, you know win every single time, and and uh, and I don't see those guys out there touting exactly how to do it. Even uh, you know Cavendish's videos and stuff like that, they're not really about sprinting; they're all about the endurance before the sprint. He doesn't really talk that much about the form of the sprint. Yeah, um, yep. I've noticed that as well. Yeah, so no one's really talking about it. And you see running videos, you can find about a thousand videos on how to swing a tennis racket. Sprinting, just put in track sprinting for, for running on the, on the uh, field and track, and you, you know, you'll get, there's, there's hundreds and thousands on, on YouTube alone. Um, you know, you can just go on and on about all the forms videos for all other sports and, 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 and cycling. That's why your segment you did the other day was really, really good, covering all different stuff that cyclists need to work on because they just they just go out there and focus on power and, and uh, not really technique, and, and that's really a, a big hurdle that our sport needs to go over. Yeah, skill itself is definitely something that tactics are the closest you'll get and maybe some kind of cadence stuff or something in the off-season, but yeah, no one at all is talking about general skills and then even more honing it down into the sprint. Can anyone learn how to sprint? Yes, I think so. I don't think there's any reason that a person can't learn it and improve it, even if they're not necessarily a sprinter, because basically you're taking power you have and making it more efficient. Uh, sprinting is not, to me, a violent activity where you make tons of power. It's more about carrying the power you have out longer, and anybody can make power, so therefore sprinting is really the 
taking of that power farther than it is to, you know, explode violently. A lot of people actually give up before they've even started sprinting. They come into the sport and maybe they don't consider themselves a sprinter or whatever, but I'm sure they say the same thing about climbing hills. But it seems to be that people want to be identified as a sprinter before they even get into the sport and then they'll have a go at it. Outside of that, they kind of give up pretty easily. I think that there is merit in everybody learning how to do this stuff. How have you used the ideas that you've developed in your own writing? To be honest, I watch that video every once in a while, even though I'm on it. You know, I, I, I will analyze myself against it. I constantly video myself to see if what I am teaching is what I'm impl- implementing every time. So I, I constantly go through the same form. I'll even go through some, some shorter drills that I do to really work on the torque aspect, really work on the running aspect, constantly refining. It's kind of like, you know, uh, you know the people who get insane about the, their Olympic lifts and they video it and they the squatting technique and they go over and over. So I, I've created a few drills and I'm going to have a, a form sprinting addendum. Uh, it's going to be really low cost, a couple dollars, just to, to show people how to use some of the these short drills to really implement some of the stuff. And so I, I go through a lot of those on a constant basis to, to keep honing the, the skill. The book, The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but he talks about this idea of deep practice as a practical means of transferring skills from one person to another. To simply put it, it's just taking the sprinting technique and transferring it into training until it becomes your default technique for sprinting. You kind of just mentioned there that you always have to reinforce it even though you've developed this whole idea that you have to continually just keep visually reinforcing it and then practicing the technique so it's still there I think that's a big part of it he has three rules that apply to the process so I kind of want to mesh the two to see how they would work together and the first rule is chunking so it's slowing down breaking it down into components so you absorb the whole thing and you can imagine yourself doing it You've broken a sprint down into five steps or components. Can you just give us a brief overview of those five steps? Yes, and well, we start with the torque phase. Well, the first thing we talk about is pedal stroke and hand position, those being two two separate things. Uh, Then we go to the torque phase, then the run phase, and then I have an additional seated power phase. If you were a track sprinter, you would go ahead and uh, go into the saddle and continue to make speed. Uh, if, if any one of those are out of line, then the other will be uh, at a great cost benefit. So that's the, that's the five chunks that I identified on the video. And just to touch really quick on what you said about, uh, what was the name of the book again? Uh, the Talent Code. Right. I think you're at, he's absolutely right that it's really got to be subconscious. And with subconscious activity, you've got to train it until it's, no, until it's second nature. So you train it until it's, it's no longer thought about. But I think people, when they get tired, they start doing things that are inefficient. And so that's why you're always trying to readjust and go back and look. So maybe through a training block, you'll get burned out and tired, and a part of you will be weaker. So you'll start doing something that's actually inefficient to try to make power. So that's why I'm always readjusting and going back to make sure you're subconsciously training the proper form uh, versus you you can see yourself get out of whack and pedal stroke and all kinds of things because of inefficiency and time and trying to make up for it other times. I see part of the process, or at least starting the process of understanding it, other than just watching and passively kind of learning, thinking about visualization, 
thinking about the actual skill itself and, and trying to transfer that process. Do you use any type of visualization in your training? Yes. Uh, part of our, my coaching system is uh, we have about four different visualization, uh, meditation, off the bike, on the bike, right before we train, even before you go to sleep at night because uh, subconscious training before you go to bed, anything that you put in your subconscious before you go to sleep can be marinated on for up to four hours. So anything you have in mind as a goal, you could put it in your mind right before you go to sleep and let, let the subconscious kind of dwell on it. So it's something that's, it's, 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 we do that with more with goals, but you could do it with anything you're visualizing yourself with become a more natural part of your uh, self-image versus uh, something you're just trying to uh, imitate. So when you first get a rider that you're trying to teach how to sprint better, how to take on the technique, where do you start? Obviously, a rider has, at a certain point, by the time they've got to you, they've probably got very bad habits and they really have to start unlearning those habits before they can move on. But is there a specific way that you kind of approach this? Well, what I'll do is have them watch the video. Then I will have them implement it on their own for a little while and then come back to me and start shooting videos of their own. Having a power meter helps too to see where exact their power zones need the most work. And we go from there. You know, you, you kind of let the... Uh, each person's a little different and uh, each form. Some people have a real natural torque in the beginning and the other people have, you know, additional problems running. Just get, getting a little bit at a time, and then I, I adjust their training based on what I see from them. So uh, those small chunk drills that we talked about a little bit, I'll put more or less of what they need in each training block to, to try to keep defining that's the sprint that I'm looking for. Yeah, see, this is the big challenge, I think, with learning this stuff without a coach, without someone watching you and helping you with cues and things. And you did touch on having a power meter, but how important is measuring the numbers or looking at an analysis of what's happening in your sprint, and how can someone do it themselves? Well, if you have your own power meter, you could. Basically, we're looking for a very little drop-off from your 2-second, 5-second, 10-second, 12-second. That's really where you're accelerating. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you could have a little bit more than the 20 to 30, but you're really trying to make the acceleration phase from, from one second up to 12 second, very little fade, and that's going to really what takes you from 30 miles an hour to 40 miles an hour. Uh, and if that, if you're looking at a power meter and you're only making good five second power and everything goes in the toilet after that, uh, that would tell you where you need to train. Or uh, you're not making that much five second power and you are running a long time, so you need to get a little more torque in the beginning to really get on top of it. One of the things that's difficult for people who don't have it or are only using uh, outside would be the conditions you have to deal with each time you go outside. So you're not using a relative media each time. So you'll go and do a sprint and you'll hit 35 miles an hour one day and you'll hit 42 the next because, uh, or, or, you know, or, uh, you know, like 65K versus 55K versus, you know, in, in the, on the same area because of wind or air density. So the power meter really takes the guesswork out of that stuff no matter what your conditions are, trainers have some benefit because the, you know, you're having a media that's almost always the same. Yeah, I think the, um, the cool thing about a sprint is that it does happen over such a short period of time that I'm sure if you were consciously looking at it over and over again and looking at a whole bunch of sprints and files over a long time, you can see the progression that would be a lot easier than looking at a two-hour race, for example, with so many other variables, even if it was 
like a pursuit, like a four-minute pursuit, I guess you can hone it down because it's a closed skill, and a power meter goes a long way in helping for that. The other rules that are in this that Coyle talks about are repeating it. So this is kind of what we've spoken about with any drills or just doing it over and over and over again. And I guess that really depends on what part of the season you're in more than anything, especially if you are a road cyclist. You're not going to be doing them all year round, I don't think. But the other one is learn to feel it. So was there a moment in your kind of mind where it just it ticked? Or you, you kind of talk about this ongoing battle. The kind, I guess it's a battle because you're probably going back to some other default position but was there a moment for you that you could just you just knew what was happening and it felt right I think that's at that point when I decided I was going to put the video together because with a lot of people I was coaching I would I would identify that you're really looking robotic you're trying to force it and it's almost you're letting it happen when you're in that right zone so your body's in a nice you're you're making power you're one with the bike every motion coming forward side left right is all one motion because you are making efficient power with every movement of the bike instead of fighting against it. And one of the biggest differences from me, say, a year ago to now with implementing this stuff is probably about, number one, 200 watts of efficiency. But but if I look at videos of how much I don't fight the bike at all, it, it's one motion where I'm swinging, the bike's swinging, and, we're, and I'm coming with the bike. And, instead of, and I've had a lot more brute force off the bike, more strength in the gym, stuff like that. So your actual strength meshed with the bike in a coordination pattern is definitely something that's felt as much as, and then you can, when you see it on paper and feel it at the same time, it's kind of like the sweet spot, the zone. You're just, you're just, you don't even get tired from the sprint, not like you would if you were fighting the bike. So that's another thing that you can't even really identify on it. A power meter or anything else is that fatigue that if you're not one with your motion, of how much energy goes out and you're just dead in 10 seconds. First, you could go 12, 15, and go 15 seconds, 30 seconds, much faster. And, and that's something that's really hard to show on paper until you feel it, until you feel it and see it at the same time and have uh, evidence to back it up, and then you realize that, that you're, you're right in the right place now. Yeah, being able to measure it would be really important there. I, sprinting is one of those really funny things that, once you've got it down, it kind of feels like it should have been that way forever, but you forget about the learning process to get to that point, however it was, you know, whether it's through something like your system or you just over time naturally refine it and it becomes better and better. I think that's the funny thing with sprinting, and that's probably why so many people don't actively go out and try and learn how to sprint better because they think they have it down. But you're talking about a very deep understanding of what's making you move forward and connecting with the bike and, and using all of that energy and momentum. And it, it kind of just wraps up and it just, it just means you're flying on the bike, I guess. That's true. Very accurate. The final kind of things I want to talk about are the transferring what you do, which is track spinning. So 200 meters, flying 200 meters, and talking about how that transfers onto the road. Are there any subtle differences other than tactics, just just the skill stuff? Are there any subtle differences between track sprinting and road? I think the main difference is, you know, it's, it's all standing versus the track has your, you would stand, accelerate, and then sit and finish. So technically you'd be using a larger gear and and really your run portion should be the more of the focus uh, after you get on top of the gear. I think with the endurance guys I train, we basically just take a lot of the track sprinting drills and we convert them to the road and set up the proper scenario for them to get the most benefit from it. 
I don't think the road cyclist needs to train near as much low speed torque uh, like the track sprinter does because they're not going to do that much of that. So most of their work should be top end versus uh, middle middle range or uh, low end. So say 15 to 30k shouldn't be that much work in that area. Maybe some to get to to establish some low end torque um, that you could apply at top end. So you'd have to build some strength to be able to use it above it, but. Most of the power should be above 100 RPMs and should be focused on that, so some downhill sprints and really focusing on maybe even motor pacing and stuff like that above in the zones you'd be trying to maintain speed at. So the torque phase is more important in a track sprinter because you are in a fixed gear or, you know, like one gear and you're not, you don't have the ability to change gears. Is that on the right track? A little bit. I think there's some torque to be made on the road for sure. You could see the five-second power of some sprinters, and it's also going to depend on the scenarios. Uh, there's going to be some torque for sure. I'd say above 100 RPMs, you make about two, three seconds of torque, versus below, it's more like five to eight. So if you're if you went from, say, 60 RPMs, you would, it would take you maybe eight seconds to get above into the run phase. Uh, and it's, maybe, it's probably only two or three seconds above 100 RPMs. So just that's that first couple stomps, to get you going. So you definitely have some application at something we train, for sure. So to say you don't need a, I wouldn't say that for sure at all. And to really put you on the spot, I want to talk just a bit about mountain bike sprinting. I guess everything really applies except for those flat handlebars. Would you have any advice for where to best place your hands on the handlebars to get a, a good sprint? I think that the thought process could be very similar. Whereas the wrists are, are not going to be the same because of how you grip the bar. But I, I would say a, a somewhat narrower grip would have you more application directly. Uh, if you got too far outside your shoulders, it may have some counterintuitive uh, application. So I think some more direct drive could give you some more force on a mountain bike versus the outside. On the road bike, you can lean it a little bit more, and you had to have that lined up. But it's going to be—it's going to be a bit different with a mountain bike. Kind of, mostly what I wanted to talk about today. Yeah. So, any final words of wisdom about sprinting? I think that anyone could do it. I think that anyone can improve at it, and I think everybody should be training it because even if you are not a sprinter at all, pushing yourself at the maximum zones will help you apply more, you know, lactic threshold anaerobic capacity so it has way many more applications than just than just sprinting um, and if you can develop the form of it that form can make you efficient at lower speeds too so j- just having your body efficient and one with the bike can be taught very well in sprinting and then applied in all areas of the bike so that that would be my, my takeaway for anybody who's going to be using that kind of method to train yeah that's excellent advice actually thinking about the application of when you're connecting with the bike when you're sprinting. Everything is functioning. You're trying to be as efficient as possible. You're trying to use probably more muscles than you normally would. So having that awareness of what's happening when definitely would help when you're just cruising along at a lower speed, you know, whatever zone you're in. John, where can people contact you or get hold of you? Let's see. Uh, the product is available on Selfie. I'll pop it in the show notes so people yeah. can get to it. Yeah, if you go to the uh, to the selfie link, um, then my my Facebook page is on the bottom of that. So if you want to contact me through Facebook, that's how most people reach me. Uh, and then we have the selfie link. So that's pretty much how I maintain all of my businesses. We have I also uh, am partner with Serenity Bikes, so 
we're on the uh, on the Facebook too, and we have our website serenitybikes.com. My email is on there as well. Cool. Well, thanks for your time today, John, and thank you for spreading the message about sprinting. Thanks for looking me up, Damien. It's been great to meet you, talking with the email and, and, and talk to you today. Alrighty, the tech hacks and products section. And this week, a little bit of a wacky one, fogless lenses and not going out and buying a solution, not going out and buying some special lenses, but I've got a YouTube clip that breaks down how you can get fogless lenses. It's quite simple. It's just rubbing on some cleaning agent onto the lenses and rubbing that off. I like the idea because there are some glasses that are endlessly fogging up. The only pain in the ass I see is I sweat and get them so dirty after every ride that I have to clean them entirely. So I would have to be reapplying the cleaning liquid to my glasses over and over again. So that is a little annoying in my mind, but still worth a try if you're a heavy sweater and you're rocking up at lights and you can't see clearly. Now, that quote from the top of the show, it's, Past Swiss National Road and Time Trial Champion Martin Kohler talking about the Tour of Qatar. He's not a big player by any stretch, but he is one of the BMC soldiers. So I thought I would give him some airtime because I like repping the underdog. But here is his take on why post-race massage is so important. Oh, it's very nice, especially after a day like today. We went with 57 kilometers an hour average. So uh, I think it's, it's very important to get a good massage in the evening and have some time to relax before the next day will be the same fight again. And that's it for this week. You've been listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash sprint to get all of the information on John's product and anything else that was mentioned in this podcast. From there, you can definitely join the email list where we'll keep you up to date with everything happening on the show. But till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 